tonight's main speaker. Please help me offer a warm Tulare County welcome to Pat Wise from Long Desert, California. You guys can do better than that. Hi everybody, my name is Pat and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to um, participate in meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in this town once um, before, 50 years ago. God, that makes me sound old, doesn't it? Um, I actually spent one night of the, my honeymoon to my first husband in this town, sleeping on his aunt's couch. I don't know why we were doing that. That doesn't seem like a very romantic thing to be doing on a honeymoon, but, but we definitely did that, and I, I don't know why, but I've not been back until this very moment. So, this, I think, is a better, a better visit. Um, I love being sober. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the way, excuse me, I love the way that I get to live my life today. If you're new, I want to welcome you. I'm here to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hope that you find here what I and obviously many other people here have found. Uh, I started drinking when I was 13 because I was at a party and people were drinking, and I just, you know, kind of wanted to fit in, and um, they were drinking rum and coke, so I drank rum and coke, and the magic happened to me that I assumed happened to you if you're sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is a change how I felt. It changed how I felt about me, and it changed how I felt about you. I have always described myself as being um, extremely shy. In Alcoholics Anonymous, you call things by different names. You call that one self-obsession. I like shy better. Shy implies it's not my fault, I can't help it. Um, but self-obsessed is what I am. I think about me all the time. How do I look? How do I sound? What are you thinking about me? And so I'm at this party and I'm feeling all of that and uh, somebody handed me that rum and coke and I drank it and, and those feelings went away. I think um, I probably relaxed, really relaxed uh, for the first time in my life that night. I um, drank too much that night, which was to be my habit. And, uh, uh, I blacked out and passed out, and I woke up in bed the next morning with a Marine that I didn't know. Now, that was a lot more than I meant to do that night. Um, I was a nice girl from Newport Beach. The girls in my crowd were not behaving this way. And I felt bad the next day. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was terrified I'd get pregnant. But I drank again at the very next opportunity without a second thought. I was apparently willing to pay the price uh, to drink from the gate, you know. Um, I mean, I didn't think any of this through at the time. If it sounds like I have uh, insight into my life, believe me, I didn't have it at the time. It, the insight came long after I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. And really, I started having insight into my life when I started sponsoring other women in Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, I, um, for a while I was periodic, mostly because of my age. I didn't have access to alcohol every day, but, but I... Um, I found it, you know, and often, we're like magnets, we find each other, you know, I'm 13, 14, 15 years old, and I don't ever remember asking anybody, where do you get a phony ID, but I became possessed of one, Um, I don't remember asking anybody, you know, where are the bars or the liquor stores and any portable self miners, but somehow I became possessed of that knowledge, and and, uh, so, you know, I drank at every opportunity, when I drank, my behavior never got any better than that first night. When I drink, as I like to describe it, I get friendly. And uh, 
because I developed a certification in high school for being a friendly girl. And, uh, you know, that's not how a lot of people would think of me. I, I meant to uh, grow up and get married and stay married to the same person forever and, you know, have some kids and live, live a decent life. And, and I'm uh, 13, 14, 15 years old, and I kind of know already... I was going to take my watch off, but I can't figure out how to get it off, so we need to be here all night. Oh, there's a clock back there. Okay, good. We're going to be all night. Um, I, um, so, you know, I, I'm drinking uh, mostly on weekends at parties and behaving badly and developing this reputation and feeling bad about myself and getting in a lot of trouble. Um, my parents were obviously concerned and they sent me away to boarding school for my last couple of years of high school and, and it did what they wanted uh, it to do in the sense that uh, it was a very structured all-girls school and, and uh, it was very hard to, first of all, there were no boys there and secondly, it was very hard to drink there, it was very hard to get alcohol there and so I think alcoholics, when they're um, applying themselves, work harder than anybody. The problem, obviously, is you don't apply ourselves all that often. But, but when I was in that boarding school and I, um, you know, didn't have all those distractions or the ability to drink, um, I studied hard and I got my grades back up and I graduated successfully. And um, I got married when I was 18 um, to the man that I spent um, that night in, in this town. Uh, it was, uh, he was a really nice person. Um, I had no business getting married. I, I had no more business getting married than trying to fly to the moon. I was so selfish and self-centered. I was, in retrospect, you know, an alcoholic very very badly in need of a drink. You know, we got married and we, um, we uh, you know, we're a young married couple. We don't have much money. You know, we got these little jobs. And so we don't have much money to drink. We drank a little bit when we were dating. And... And, but now we're married, we don't have money to drink, and, and I can see today, clearly, I was reckless, irritable, discontent, as our book describes, I needed a drink. I didn't know that, I just knew that I didn't feel happy there, and um, it wasn't that we were fighting or anything, I mean, he was a perfectly nice fellow, I don't ever remember having an argument with him, but... Um, we were actually only married for six months because I needed to, to um, I needed to leave. You know, I, I made other things the excuse, um, but really, I just needed to drink. Um, I divorced him, and um, he didn't really know what had happened. You know, he didn't um, know why I'd left, and, and I wouldn't talk to him about it because I didn't know why I'd left. You know, I just knew that I had to. Um, I mentioned that, I almost always mention it when I talk because when I got sober in alcohol, that all happened when I was 18. Um, I got sober when I was almost 31 and I didn't see him then in all that time. And, and I saw him after I was sober a few months and um, he didn't see me, I saw him. And, and I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. Here I am, sober and alcoholic, anonymous, and God drops this guy in my path. Here's an opportunity to make amends. You know, this is pretty cool. And then my next thought was, I'm not sober all that long, and I'm not actually in that step yet. And I let that opportunity pass by. That was 38 years ago, and I haven't seen it from that day to this. You know, it's an amend that I should have made. Um, it's my strong recommendation. Uh, when opportunities to make an end present themselves if you do it, of course, with your sponsor's direction, you know, I hope I get another stab at this one. I really, 
I really wish I'd done it. I actually know where he lives today. You know, with the internet, you can find anybody today. And I know exactly where he is. Um, but I talked to my sponsor about it. She said, you know, Pat, I don't think that uh, he's married and uh, may or may not have grown children. I don't know, but, but he's definitely married. And she said, I don't think that uh, you have the right to leave into somebody's life 50 years after the fact to make amends. Um, because you might be creating grounds for new amends. You know, you don't have the right to disrupt his life in a way that might be uh, uncomfortable for him. Uh, and so I think you have to sit on that and hope that God does give you a shot at it, but you can't go pursue it. And that's hard. It's hard. I pray about it every day that, that God, if, if it is his will, that I get another chance to, to try to um, make amends to him anyway. So now I'm 18 and a half, I'm divorced, and uh, I moved to L.A., which is about 50 miles up the street from where I've been living, and um, I've got a job and an apartment, and I'm, um, I'm working as a secretary in a trucking company, and I'm drinking with these truck drivers, and I'm behaving there exactly the way I behaved in high school, which is to say before I left that trucking company, I knew most of those truck drivers. And... Uh, my father was, my parents were divorced when I was really young. My father was vice president of that company, which is how I got the job. I remember I called him one day. You know, when you're young and you, and you don't have, a, like, your first job, it's hard to get that first job. And so I had this really good secretarial skill. So I called my dad, and I said, would you consider hiring me? It's hard to get, you know, I need a job. And he was very reluctant to, to do. I remember he said, oh, I don't know. I don't think it's a good idea to hire a family member. He should have listened to his instincts. Um, he hired me, and um, and I as I say, I behaved badly there. He called me one day. I'd been there about six or seven months, and he called me, and, and he tried to talk to me about the way I was behaving because everybody was talking about me. And uh, I don't know about you. Well, you know about you. But we can't talk about this. I can't even think about it myself. I certainly can't talk to my father about it. And so I said some really ugly things to him on the phone that day just to get him off the phone. The end result of that conversation is he and I did not talk again until, uh, except was absolutely necessary at weddings and funerals, until I got sober and alcoholic anonymous and made amends to him, and, and we have a good relationship today. Um, so, you know, I, I owe that 100% to alcoholic anonymous. Anyway, I, I left that job and I went on to the next job, and, and you know, that job pretty much describes every job I have. I'm a very good secretary, I never had any trouble getting a job, and when I was new on the job, I'd be kind of nervous. I wanted you know, make a good impression and do a good job and all of that. So I would keep my drinking separate for a while, but eventually I would relax on that job and then the drinking would creep in, you know, and then I'd be drinking a little at lunchtime or drinking a lot at lunchtime and I'd be drinking after work with my boss and the clients and the coworkers and sleeping with them or their spouses. doesn't matter to me. And I created a deadly mess, you know, and I have to leave. And that's what I did, job to job to job. When I got sober, there was a, the 20 questions. There was a question on there, have you ever uh, lost a job because of drinking? And I checked no. And, and I hadn't. I had never been fired from a job because of drinking. But when I got a little more honest, um, I quit every job I had, every job I had because of drinking, because of I had so humiliated myself or, you know, the heat was so, so I remember I quit uh, more than one job after an office Christmas party without going back to hang out my desk because I knew that I couldn't take those people in the light of day after what I'd done the night before. I drank a lot of blackouts and frankly I'm grateful for them. I remember plenty. I do not need more information. 
but um, you know, I should probably drink. <clears throat> I went out with my boss and my coworkers one night. We're bar hopping around downtown LA, and we were all drunk. But it, I guess I was drunker than they. And uh, when we wound up in the strip joint, I was the only one who auditioned for a job. <laughs> Really my fault. I know you'll understand when I explain this to you. Um, we were at the stages like here. We were at this table directly in front, and um, I'd excuse myself from the table to go to the ladies' room, which was kind of down the hall behind the stage, and bumped into the owner of the bar in the hallway there, and was making some derogatory remarks about the caliber of his entertainment, and he said something to me along the lines of, "If you think you're such hot stuff." which apparently I thought. So, a moment ago I was sitting here with my boss and my co-workers dressed over like I'm dressed tonight, and then moments later I'm on the stage essentially dressed in nothing, and there was that moment when my boss's eye and my neck, and he realized who that was up there. I can still see the look on his face, honestly, like it just happened. Um, it's forever etched in my, probably in mine too. It was, a, it was definitely a moment, that was another job I quit with Dow, I was back to clean out my desk. Uh, so you kind of get the idea. Um, you know, I just, I have no uh, direction, no purpose, no nothing in my life. I, I remember one time I discovered this bar in San Juan Capistrano. Now, San Juan Capistrano is not around the corner from where I was living in L.A. It's probably, I don't know, 100 miles maybe, 7,500 miles away. And somehow I discovered this bar that had this mariachi band. Um, the, the mariachi band played there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. They, they, there were eight or ten guys in this band, and they played there, and then they, on those nights they stayed in a little local motel near the bar. And then on Sunday nights, after they finished, they drove back to Tijuana, presumably for their wives and many children. I don't know, because none of them spoke English. But I became sort of their, not sort of, I became their groupie. And I drove from Los Angeles to San Juan Capistrano every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. Um, I would hand the bartender my purse. First thing I did, I hand the bartender my purse. Everybody knew me. Hand the bartender my purse and put it behind the um, bar so I wouldn't lose it. And, um, and I would sit at the bar and I would drink and request those sad songs, you know. And, and then at some point, there's a little dance floor where the patrons of the bar could dance. And at some point during the evening, one of these mariachi players would put his instrument down and ask me to dance. And I can remember moving around the dance floor with this guy thinking that all of you, the other people there at the bar, must be looking at me with, I don't know, awe and admiration, thinking I must be somebody because I, I seem to know the band. Okay, I knew the band. I knew the whole band. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night for I don't know how long. The better part of the year, I think. Um, and then I didn't go anymore. And I don't know why. To this day, I don't know why. I can only assume that something by my now diminishing standards happened that was so bad that even I couldn't um, go back there. I don't know. Mercifully, I don't remember what it was. You know, I was sober, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, and I got asked to speak at a meeting not far from there. And I, I got to go down there that night, and I got this really early, had some time to chill, and I thought, I wonder if that place is still there, and I drove around, I found it, and um, it was dark, and there was, you could sort of see there's a little light, you know, from the crack of the door there, and I parked across the street, I just sat in my parking, and I was thinking about it, and looking, looking at that door, and thinking about all that time that I spent in there, and I couldn't... Um, 
I couldn't remember one happy night there. I couldn't remember one really fun time, one really great dance, one really good laugh. Every memory I could come up with from that place was kind of humiliating and sad and just awful. And yet I go there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night for a long time. You know, that's what alcoholism does to me. You know, I have no choice. But we were talking about choice in the, in the meeting today. I have no choice in, in my life, none. No choices about anything. Um, I, um, I got married again. Um, oh, to go back to the, so this trip joint. You know, when I woke up the next morning after that um, incident, I was properly horrified at what I'd done. But it gave me ideas, and I actually got a job as a go-go dancer. Go-go uh, dancing, in my mind's eye, seemed much classier than stripping. It's not, but it's, I convinced myself that it was. And there were actually nightclubs, nice like on Sunset Strip, that had go-go dancers. I did not work in those nightclubs. Nice I worked in terrible places. And, uh, and I met the man who was to become my second husband in, in one of these places where I was working. And uh, he was... Uh, well, let's just say probably the most unsuitable man in the state of California for me. So, of course, we moved right in together and eventually got married. And, you know, now I'm married again, but I am a full-blown alcoholic by this point, And I, I, my life is completely out of control. I, um, we had a lot of trouble. He drank, and I met him in a bar. But, uh, but he didn't drink as much as I did. And, and my drinking and my behavior behind drinking got to be this big topic of conversation around our house. Because although I'm married now, I'm still behaving like I'm single, you know. I am completely out of control, and so we had a lot of, a lot of trouble. I cheated on us all the time, and, and uh, it was bad. Um, he, he was a big uh, gambler, and uh, he was gone a lot at night at the racetrack, and, you know, actually that was fine with me. Uh, I was drinking more and more at home. I started getting arrested, and I couldn't believe this was happening to me. I'm a nice girl from Newport Beach. I can't believe I'm in jail, but I was in jail, you know. Um, and uh, not for any big, exciting um, bank robbery or anything. Uh, my first arrest was on a Thanksgiving night. I'd been to dinner at my parents' house in Newport, and that. Did I mention my parents were unhappy about this marriage? He wasn't invited to Thanksgiving dinner. Actually, they never met him. They felt so strongly about it. Um, so I've gone to my parents' house for Thanksgiving dinner. My husband went to, he, he was a chef, and his boss at the restaurant had a party buffet for the employees, and then I think he got it out in L.A. I drank, my parents were big drinkers. I drank a lot at their house. I was driving home. I was drunk. And, uh, I stopped in a bar uh, on Main Street in downtown LA, which is Skid Row, which is not on the direct line from my parents' home to where I was living, but nonetheless, that's where I stopped. And, you know, I drank some more there and um, came out and got arrested for common drunk on Main Street. They took me to Civil Brand, which was the women's institution there. It uh, used to be in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, I remember that I could make a phone call, and so I, and I remember where my husband was, so I called him at his boss's house. The boss's wife answered the phone. I identified myself and, and I told her that I was in jail because she had my husband come bail me out. It did not occur to me that it might have been nice just to maybe ask to speak directly to him to deliver that happy news. And yet, you know, years later when I finally made it to Alcoholics Anonymous, I remember sitting in meetings a long time hearing you talk about making amends and thinking, no, 
no, I don't really think I've heard any study. You know, I, I knew you, I probably heard. She said, well, I am a individual subscriber, completely selfish and self-centered, but it took a long time to, to see that. I, um, so it was bad, you get the idea of that. But he's a good gambler, he's gone a lot at night, and, and you know, that's fine with me. I'm just sitting in a rocking chair in my living room in a purple final bathroom and drinking every night until I pass that. And I'm good with that, you know, I'm good with it. I play those bad records over and over again. My personal favorite to this day when I hear it on the radio or something, it's just kind of like a knife in my heart. Ray Charles, born to lose. Oh, man, I play it and cry and feel sorry for myself. And sometimes I call people on the phone. I've heard AA speakers say that they, you know, called the White House and demanded to speak to the president. I, I would never do that. I tell people I knew. Um, most memorably, a boyfriend I had when I was 12. Uh, I wonder what Danny's doing these days. Of course, I have no idea where Danny might be living, so I wake up. And you know if you're a phone caller or if you're an hour long, you've got some of these calls. That it never happens at 7.30 in the evening. You know, it's probably 2 in the morning or something. And so I wake up several other people, and I found Danny and his wife, and I'm pretty sure they were happy to hear from me. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, I hated my husband. I wasn't getting along with my parents. I hated my job. I had this little job. I, mean, I peaked in my career when I was about 23. When I was 23 years old, I was working as a legal secretary. I was making really, really good money for somebody that age. And, you know, really a good future ahead of me. And my last job before I got sober when I was 30 was um, as a clerk in a YMCA. And uh, I was barely hanging on to that job. Barely hanging on to it. Um, so, my life was not good. Not good. I called Alcoholics Anonymous one night. I was drunk when I called. I have no idea what triggered the notion that particular night to call, but I called. And a real nice man at Central Office answered the phone and asked if I was having a problem with alcohol. He said that I was. And I, excuse me, I started to cry. And I was embarrassed about that, but I drunk enough just to stay on the phone anyway. And uh, he talked to me a long time, told me a lot about himself. And uh, I remember he wanted to send some women to my house. So I said, oh, no, thank you. I don't think I'm that bad. And he seemed to understand. And he said, do you think you could not drink tomorrow and go to meetings tomorrow night? And I said, yes. Now, actually, I doubt very much that I'm not going to drink tomorrow. I mean, I drink every day. But yes was obviously the right answer. So I said, yes. The next day, the next morning, I came to, and I, I remembered making a phone call, and I remembered, you know, parts of the conversation, and I had written the address down of the meeting place, and, um, you know, the next morning in the light of day, I thought I'd been a little premature about calling AA, but um, I couldn't get it out of my mind all day, and I heard myself say to my husband that night at the dinner table, I'm going to a meeting with alcoholics anonymous tonight. He said something really loving to me, like, yeah, whatever. You know, we were talking a lot at all. And I went to my first meeting. I had no idea what was about to happen. No idea at all. There was a big meeting in the basement of the church in Santa Monica. There were probably 
350 people there maybe and it might as well have been 30,000 people you know I saw them all like, like we were here tonight you know kissing and hugging and going down these stage and steps and obviously they've all known each other their entire lives and I'm the only one who's an outsider here there's no way I can get out of this car and go in that room there's no way I can do it so somehow I did and I walked down the stairs and there was a man standing at the door who put out his hand and said hello my name is Clint welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous I think that's the most important thing anybody ever does in a meeting. It made me feel welcome. He later became a dear friend, but that night it just made me feel welcome. So we didn't it was an eight thirty meeting, so of course I got there at eight twenty eight. Um, I was sober. I didn't drink that day, but I needed a drink bad. Sometimes by eight thirty I'm already passed out, you know, so I'm not feeling very well that night. So he says, me now I'm in the room at eight twenty nine people were milling around and looking for a seat and the man comes out of the crowd and asks me if I'm new and I can't imagine how he knows that you know um, it could have been the terrible clothes I was wearing or perhaps the sweat which is you know pouring out who knows but he seemed to know and um I said that I was, and it seemed like that. There's about 50 women coming at me. They're all writing their numbers on little slips of paper, and they got me a big book, whatever in the world a big book might be, and they got me a seat, and, a, and a, the meeting began. It was a speaker meeting, and the speaker that night was a man by the name of Norm A. And I heard him. Uh, he, we actually drank in one of the same places. He's not the same, he was a much older man than I, but um, I identified. I believed that he drank the way I drank. I believed that he was sober. I could see that he was sober. And I was sitting way in the back of this big room, and, and uh, I could feel his um, energy and his enthusiasm for life. I could feel it way in the back of the room. I think I think that night, maybe I, if you'd asked me, I, I would have said, I don't know, maybe I can stay sober if I do whatever that guy's doing, but I, I will never be able to feel the way he's feeling. You can't get from here to there. It's impossible. But what I got that of course, was hope. We got up at the end of the meeting, we held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, when they said, keep coming back, these two nice people on either side of me squeezed my hand. I did not know the whole room was doing that. I thought it was just these two people, and I was very touched, I have to tell you. Um, but the minute they um, dropped my hand, I was out the door. I'm like stark raging sober. There is no way I can stay here and chat with you. I'm completely incapable of that. But I had the big book, and I sat up most of that night reading it. And I, and I remember thinking, this is great. I'm gonna, I liked the meeting. I really did. I'm going to go to that meeting every Saturday night and be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard you say that night that I should go to a lot of meetings, and I thought every Saturday sounded like a lot. Um, so... Surprise, surprise, I drank again on Friday. Now, on the one hand, Saturday and Friday, I didn't drink. And I remember every day thinking, wow, AA really works. This is great. And then on Friday, I'm drunk, and I kind of can't believe it. And uh, I go back to the meeting Saturday, and I raise my hand for being under a week of sobriety again, and I got some more phone numbers. I had many the week before, and one of these women said, you know, it really works better if you call one of these numbers. And, uh, I, I couldn't imagine calling you. I don't, I don't know you. What would I say to you? Um, I drank a couple more times that week, and then I called that woman who said that to me, and I was drunk when I called her. And she said, you don't seem to be doing too well on your own. I think you need a sponsor. Most of us have found that to be pretty helpful. I said, oh, well, all right, what's the sponsor? And um, boy, she got all excited and selfish. And how do I get more of what is it? Well, I'll be your sponsor. And um, 
Okay, what do I do? And she said, you need a more. And she said, they both have to be asked. And she said, bring it with you. Uh, so me, Mar and I are meeting early, and we'll sit and talk about sponsorship and alcoholics and all this. And um, next night was, the next night was a Thursday, except um, like not meeting night, you know. But I somehow sensed that maybe I shouldn't point that out to her, you know. So I said, okay. And I, I met her the next night, and um, the first thing she did is she took this, a copy of the meeting directory. She circled the meeting for every night of the week to, for me to go to. She didn't suggest or recommend. She said, on Monday we'll go here, on Tuesday there, we'll go here on Wednesday. And I said, oh, excuse me, I can't, I can't possibly do that. Um, I'm a married woman. My husband is not happy at all that I'm at this meeting tonight. I certainly cannot go every night. It's completely out of here. This huge fight before I left the house tonight about me coming tonight. I can't, I can't do it. I can't. And she said something like, well, maybe you can do it with less than that would be as your sponsor. She said something like, if you want me to be your sponsor, I assume it's because you want what I have. And if you want what I have, I only know one way to get it, and that's to do what I do. And this is what I do. I didn't know it then, but it's so clear to me now my lifetime and the balance right there in that conversation. You know, it could have gone either way. And I... I found myself agreeing to do what she was asking me to do. Now, if you're new, this is important. I didn't agree happily, and I didn't do it happily, but I did it. And that's why I'm standing here 38 years later. You know, I just did it. You're me to do and I, I whined about everything. I cried all the time. Uh, I fought with my husband every night before I went to meet. He thought I was coming to Alcoholics Anonymous to meet men. Now, it's true I cheated on him all the years we've been married. It's also true that I noticed there were men in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also true that I was more than willing to get better acquainted with some of you gentlemen. But none of the men in AA appeared to be interested in me, which hurt my feelings. And it really made me mad that my husband was accusing me of something I was not actually doing right at that minute. And so I felt really, really, really sorry for myself. Um, every night we would have dinner and we'd have this huge fight about me going to the meeting. And I would get in the car sobbing hysterically. It's a miracle I wasn't killed in the car after I was driving to the meeting because I cried all the way to every meeting for probably the first year. Um, my father told me I had to get every meeting one hour early, not 55 minutes early, one hour early. And I had to have commitments, early commitments, like cookies or chairs or coffee, you know, things you do before the meeting. And I was to get to the meeting and one hour early and do my commitment and then circulate throughout the room and shake hands with other people as they got there, uh, introduce myself, ask them how, how they are, so I care. Uh, get some phone numbers of three women that I don't already have, and then tomorrow, after the meeting, in addition to calling my sponsor, I'm to call these three women whose numbers I got the night before. Um, so I, you know, I had this huge fight with my husband. I'd be in the car driving with me, sobbing hysterically, thinking to myself, you know what? It's not worth it. If this is the variety, you can have it. I'll go to this stupid meeting tonight because I'm already out of the house tonight, but this is the last one. I can't do this. It's too hard. It's too hard. I can't do it. And I get to the meeting and I sign the cookies around the kitchen or whatever my job was, and then I come out and work the room, you know. Hi, Fred, how are you? And Fred would say something like, Fine, Pat, how are you? And I tell him how I was, you know, and until his eyes would glaze over and move on to the Hi, Mary, how are you? And eventually, mercifully, the meeting would start and I'd get some relief for myself 
Um, one night I learned the most important, about three or four months ago, I learned the single most important thing I think I've learned since in 38 years. I was working in the room, which I just described to you, and I went up to this. I used to say an old timer, I used to have like six more months of me or something. I went up to him and um, he asked me how I was, and I started telling, and he cut me off in mid sentence. He said, I don't want to listen to that. Why don't you go find a newcomer to talk to you? Perhaps she'd feel better. And he pointed to a girl in the back of the room, and he said, that girl over there did her very first meeting. Why don't you just march over and say hello? I remember thinking that I didn't care if that girl lived or died. I wish Larry would die and mind his own business. But I knew if I didn't go talk to that girl that he would tell my sponsor. So it just shouldn't take but a moment. I'll just go here and say hello. If my memory serves me correctly, I believe I was crying as I welcomed her to Alcoholics Anonymous. I put my hand out and introduced myself, and the girl who had 12 steps her, who I knew, said, Oh, God, I'm so happy to see you. This is this girl's first meeting, and she had this big fight with her husband about coming to AA, and I knew you were the exact right person to talk to her. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, I think I'm the, this is like the second thinking. You know, I'm standing in front of this girl and I'm thinking, I'm the worst person in this room to talk to her. I fight with my husband all the time, but I have nothing of value to share here. I kind of overlooked that I was sober for four months. That's kind of valuable. But all I could see was how sad and tragic my life was, you know? But I'm still on standard and I'm thinking that. And at the, at the same time, I'm thinking, I'm standing in front of somebody at their very first meeting. I really need to say something positive here. I opened up my mouth, and I heard myself say, keep coming back if it's better a day at a time. Now I just lied to a newcomer. I don't think it's better at all. Again, I'm overlooking that I am sober. It's kind of important. But here's what happened to me. I know I didn't talk to this girl. I was incapable of having a conversation with her. I was 20 seconds to know. There was a center aisle in the room. I was walking back down that center aisle, and I had this moment where I realized that it was the first time in that three or four months, however long I was sober, in that hour period of time, from the time I hit the door of the meeting hall until the meeting actually starts, that I was there and I wasn't crying. And the reason I wasn't crying is for that brief little moment I tried to think of something positive to say to this girl who was newer than me, and I felt better. It turns out, when I'm thinking about you, I can't be thinking about me at the same time. At the same time I'm not thinking about me, I'm having better days. And so is everybody around me. You know, um, I would like to tell you from that moment this, I've happily worked with others in life and ran, but that would be a lie. But um, it works. There's a line in the book. Um, I hate when I start a sentence that way because I can never quote anything precisely, but to the extent that when all else fails, working with another alcoholic will say that it's the truth. If it's the truth that day, it's the truth this day. It always works. Um, anyway, I. Um, you know, it seemed clear to me that the problems in my marriage had to be his fault. I mean, I'm working a spiritual program now, it can't be my fault. Um, I'm not exactly working a spiritual program at home. I'm like a crazy person, but I, I couldn't see my part in anything. And with an attitude like that, of course, it was inevitable that I would meet a man in a meeting who looked good to me. Actually, I've met many, but one who looked back. Um, I was about 10 months sober. The gentleman in question was about 10 minutes sober. I saw him when he came to the door the first time. He had a shaved head and a Fu Manchu mustache and heart started to pound. I just thought he was just, oh my gosh, I left across the chair a few to introduce myself to him and my father noticed. And um, I went over to her. She said, let's not forget that. You're a married woman. And 
And I said, yeah, right. I'm so unhappy. And she said, nonetheless, you're married. And as long as you're married, I expect you to ask Mary. I do not see this as a problem. I'll get divorced. And she said, no. We in Alcoholics Anonymous don't think it's a good idea to make major moves in our first year of society. I want you to stay married and ask Mary. Well, I was obsessed with this man. Um, I just couldn't understand why my conscience couldn't see. Why would God get this guy sober in my home group if he didn't mean for us to be together? <laughs> so we began, I now refer to this as the death dance. Um, it starts with the deep, meaningful glances across the room, and they were kind of brushing up against each other in the coffee line, and then he's walking me to my car after the meeting, and then I'm parking further and further away from the meeting. And, um, it seems to be a little bit complicated to actually get together. I mean, I'm a married woman, obviously, we're not going to go to my place. He's a newcomer, he does not have a place. <laughs> we're very resourceful. We can make anything happen. I mean, we're really very resourceful. We also the time working at a record company in Hollywood, and he was very conveniently also working in Hollywood at a porn book store. <laughs> So I made this lunch hour one day, long lunch hour one day at work for somebody to cover for me, and I uh, didn't have a car either, so I picked him up at the bookstore, and we um, went to a motel and got to know each other better, and I dropped him off at the bookstore that afternoon. I was driving back to my office, and it occurred to me in the car that day that I was um, 10 months sober, and I was living exactly the way I always did. I've been sitting in meetings for 10 months, and you say pretty much every night that I'm going to change everything about the way I can live in my life, or I'm probably going to drink. And I knew that day that I'd been in a lot of trouble. I was my young 38 years that day, and the closest I had to pick up the drink. I was scared to tell my sponsor what I'd done because she'd been so clear in her direction about this guy. But the bottom line is, I don't want to drink. You know? and so I told my sponsor what I'd done, and she said, You know, Pat, I don't think you're a woman who could cheat on her husband and say, Sober, and you don't have to live that way anymore if you don't want to. Okay, and I want to. You know what? I've never wanted to live that way. Drunk or sober, I never wanted to live that way. Not wanting to do it doesn't make anything happen. You know, not wanting is not wanting. It's useless. Here's what I did. If this interests you at all, you've got to pay really close attention because this goes by real fast. Here's what I did. Day at a time, I stayed away from that guy. A day at a time I didn't drive by that bookstore, a day at a time I didn't call him, a day at a time I didn't take his calls, a day at a time when I found the meeting, I shook hands with a locked elbow. If you're new, that means he never got closer than the entire length of my arm. Hello, and I kept moving. I thought I should explain to him what was going on here. Unfortunately, I ran that idea by my sponsor, and she said, oh, I think you'll get the idea. And so I did it her way. I heard for the first time that line that is read in every single meeting I go to, half measures of it all nothing. I heard it, and I knew for me this was going to be the big make it or break it moment. You know, I knew for me I was going to have to figure out a way to change this way of living or I was going to drink for sure. And so I did it 100% of her way. Now here's the, here's the thing. The obsession, of course, passed. <clears throat> Obsessions always pass. But the really good news, and the part I never even dreamed of, is that I don't live that way anymore. I simply don't live that way anymore. What a gift. You know, what an incredible gift. Um, I, um, 
my first sponsor drank when I was married and had sober. I had a new sponsor right away who was sober a long time. And the first thing she said to me is, I watched you whine about your husband from across the room. And uh, I don't want to hear it. I want you a day at a time to act as though you're a kind and loving wife. You owe a lot of amends to that man. The big book is really clear on some of these amends, difficult amends. It says right in this step, you can't make direct amends. What did you feel like injuring that person or others? She said, that means that you cannot go home in confession to validity you may not know about. You can't, it's not about clearing your conscience. It's about making things right. She said, I don't know what's going to happen to your marriage. Maybe it'll end. I mean, it doesn't seem like a very good marriage, but maybe if you stay there a day at a time and ask if you're a kind and loving wife, you'll be able to make some daily living amends to him and make up for some of that stuff that she's done over the, over the years that she's been married to him. And then if you do have to walk away somewhere down the road, maybe you can do it with no guilt. No guilt got my attention because I had a lot of guilt. And so I started doing what she was telling me to do. She gave me some very specific directions. And then I also started watching people in AA, other couples, on how they treated each other. There's, um, in AA, there's good examples and there's bad examples. And um, I tried to take the good stuff and, and go home and practice it in, in my home. And, you know, some days were good, some days were great, other days were not so good, but I just did it a day at a time. And one night I was, I don't know how long I've been doing it, a few months maybe, close, maybe close to a year, I really don't know, maybe six months, I don't know, it doesn't matter. I was on my knees saying my prayers, which were very pretty brief in those days. In the morning, dear God, please help me stay sober today, amen, and at night, thank you for keeping me sober today. And I was on my knees saying my prayers, thank you for keeping me sober today, amen, and I started to get up off my knees and I realized that I'm comfortable in that house with that husband. And it hadn't happened that day. It had already happened before. I don't know when it happened. I got back down on my knees that night and I thanked God for this new feeling. I wasn't even sure what it was, but I, I said, God, I believe what you need for me to stay married to this man, that I could do that and stay sober and have a happy life. Thank you. Um, not long after that, we found out that he had cancer. My first thought, because this is who I am, I'm selfish and self-centered, is why this would have happened when I hated him. I'm very glad it did not happen when I hated him. Um, I just kept doing what I had been doing, you know. Um, he was sick for a year and a half and he did die. That was hard. I used to say it was the hardest year and a half of my life. That is no longer true. But it was at that point. Um, but it was also the best year and a half of our marriage. I was so glad that I had stayed there when all of my best judgment had suggested that I should leave. I was so glad that I was there in that last year and a half um, when he was so sick. Um, and he knew that I was there because I wanted to be there, not just because he was sick and, you know, I felt some obligation to take care of him. And, I mean, it was there and unbelievable, you know what I'm saying? Um, when he died, I... Um, Maybe funeral arrangements at this little chapel and um, a couple hundred people from Alcoholics Anonymous took the afternoon out to be there. They didn't know him, but they knew me. And they came, of course, to support me. And I realized sitting in that chapel that day, what my confidence honestly happened. I knew that I had 100% made my amends to him. I felt sad, obviously, um, about his death, but I felt um, 100% right about my relationship with him and knowing that I had 100% made my own I was so grateful that I had stayed in that marriage. 
I remember thinking, wow, that's like the big payoff for doing the work. You know, I, I stayed there a day at a time and I, I did what she suggested and, and, um, and now I get this great feeling, you know, of knowing that that's an amend that is 100% made. That's fantastic. Thank you, God. Here's the thing. My God has a much, much, much bigger vision for me than I have. That was not even close to the big chaos I hate that phrase but I don't know how else to describe it after he um, died I started dating a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous we fell in love we got married we um, were married for 27 years we had the best life together just the best life together both very active members of Alcoholics Anonymous our house was always filled with crazy newcomers and um, you know, the phone was always ringing off the hook and just um, such a great life together. He died quite suddenly um, a few years ago and I'm telling you, my heart broke. I couldn't, I couldn't believe a person could hurt that bad and still like walk around, you know. I, I, um, he gave home the meaning to the term broken heart to me, really, it did. The day that he died, um, he died in a heart attack. I had talked to him on the phone um, in the morning. I was at work, and uh, the last words we said to each other before we hung up were, I love you. That's not a mistake. We always said that. I highly recommend it. You can imagine how glad I am that those were the last words we said to each other. Um, and I, I knew that I knew that something was wrong because he usually called me a couple times and he didn't and he wasn't available you know he was answering his dog I came home and I found him he was, he was there I made one phone call to somebody who wasn't home a, a friend on the program who wasn't home and I turned around I left a message and turned around and my house was filled with silver on calls and they walked me through everything just absolutely walked me through everything I do not have to do anything like I can't ever get to say it. I have to say that I felt as bad as a person could feel for two years. I just couldn't believe I could feel that bad. But not once, not once, did the idea of picking up a drink cross my mind. And that's because I've been in the middle of alcoholics anonymous all these years. And I continue to be in the middle of alcoholics anonymous, even feeling that bad. I never felt like going to a meeting for, you know, for quite a while. I didn't feel like going to meetings, but I went. You know, I didn't feel like going to work, but I went. I didn't feel like taking calls from the women I sponsored, but I took them. You know, I did everything that I was supposed to do. After he, um, a few months after he, maybe a couple months after he died, I realized one day that I wasn't praying, that I, that I stopped praying. And I thought, oh, that can't be good. I gotta start doing that again. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't pray. I talked about it because I know what to do. I talked about it in a women's meeting, and um, a woman there said to me, do you think that you could commit to us that you would read the 24-hour-a-day book every day? And I said, well, yeah, I could do that. And she said, well, I would recommend you do that. So I started doing that, and eventually it led me back to be able to pray. I, I realized, I, I think I know, the kids and I used to pray together at night, and I think that's why, why I stopped. You know, it was just too hard at first. But, um, but I just followed you know, I asked for help, I followed directions. It doesn't matter how long sober you are, you know. Um, I had a sponsor today and I asked for direction. I, I don't, um, I don't assume that because I'm sober a long time I can just do this test and you know, that I intuitively know everything. I intuitively know something, but I don't know everything and I'm not afraid to ask for help. I'm afraid actually not to ask for help, you know. I, um, 
after he died, my mother lived with my mother next door to us um, a, a, a couple of years before he died, so we could be getting older, so we could take care of her, but not actually be living together. And right after he died, she became very ill, and um, I had to start driving her to Pomonify, they believe, for treatment, uh, which was like an hour's drive away. My mother, that's why I can get it. Nick and I were one political persuasion, and my mother was the complete opposite. Nick was very, uh, he loved uh, discussing politics. He loved a good political discussion with somebody on the other side who, who, was, who was smart, you know, and could talk intelligently about politics. He, he loved that kind of interchange. My mother was not a stupid woman, but she was a very good mother-in-law, and she never, ever discussed politics with him. But now he's gone, and we're in the car five days a week for an hour driving to Pomona, and she started talking politics. And I thought, she thinks now that he's gone, she can change my mind. I got it right away. And I just, yeah, my first reaction is, what the heck? You know, she's like, come on, Mom, are you crazy? I got it. My, I can't live long enough to make proper amends to my mother. I've been, let's see, this is five years or four years, five years ago, so I'm sober, whatever, I'm not good at math. Thirty plus years, I've been making daily living amends to my mother. I guess, but it's not over yet. <laughs> this is not over yet. My whole job here is to make my mother happy. Period. That's it. That's my whole job with my mother. I don't get to disagree with her on anything. So, we're in the car. And she's talking. And I'm saying things like, hmm, gosh, Mom, I never thought of it that way before. Or, I got this in Alanon. You could be right. The veins are sticking out on my neck. I'm not kidding you. I'm just like, I can't believe this is so hard. We get out to Pomona. I get her settled in the treatment thing. And I said, I'm just going to step out in the courtyard and call my office and see if there's anything I need to be, you know, doing. And, and I go out in the courtyard and I call a friend on the program and I just burst into tears. You know, just from the strength of it. And, and I talk to whoever, you know, that I reached. And, and it wasn't like they had some magic answer. just getting it out, you know. And we'd have a little laugh or something. And then I could go back in and be with my mother and everything would be okay, you know. And I'm very proud to say that um, I, I think my mother thought she had changed my mind before she died. Um, a couple of days before she died, she said to me, you know, I'm not afraid to die. I've had a long, long very happy life and you know I'm tired and I'm ready to go but I'm worried about you me, me. she said I um, you're going to be all alone and you're going to be all alone and I said mom you were at this funeral there were a thousand people there I'm not alone and I could just see that sort of realization come over her face that yeah I was going to be okay you know and of course that happened uh, I retired from my job a couple of years ago and I moved to the desert and uh I love it. I love retirement. I, I, love, I can't recommend it enough. I just, it's the greatest. Um, my life is different than I thought it was going to be. You know, um, things that I had dreams of making in plans and things that we were going to do that, that now are not going to happen. But um, but I'm creating for I guess you say my new single life. You know, and it's, sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's easy. Um, but I'm not. We were talking earlier, um, yeah, I'm not, um, 
unhappy. I'm very happy. I'm a very happy life. There are moments when I still miss it so much I can hardly stand it. There are moments when I something happens that I think, oh my God, I can't wait to dance, and then there's that moment, oh wait, I can't. You know. Although actually I do. Yeah, I kind of think he's listening, but whatever. Um, but, but by and large, um, I'm creating this sort of new um, adventure from life for myself. I, I just have to talk about this because it's so exciting to me. A friend and I are, I am like the least athletic person you probably have ever met. Um, but I've started, and please don't say this word, training. Um, a friend and I are going to go to Spain next year and walk the Pina de Santiago, which, if you're not familiar, is a 500 mile kind of pilgrimage, and um, I'm very, very excited about it. It's going to be like the grand adventure of my life, really, you know. Um, and I, I think about it, and I think about it every day. I'm so excited. We're planning, we're training, we're talking about it all the time. And it's, I love having that. Um, I guess what I'm saying is I've got that spark back, you know, that enthusiasm for something really exciting to look forward to, uh, and, I, and that makes me happy. If you're new and alcoholic, not if I want to welcome you here, I hope that you stay. I would recommend you do three things if you're new. One is get a sponsor before you leave this room. Two is get a home group, a place where you are the person who throws the cookies around in the kitchen or whatever your job is. That might save your life, you know, if you don't show up for it, somebody might call you and maybe save your life. The third thing I recommend you do is um, make a friend, somebody around your own of sobriety you can talk to and hang out with. Uh, my first friend's name is Betty. I told Betty everything before I told it to my sponsor. When you're new, it's nice to hear how it and it sounds out loud before you call your sponsor with it, you know, because you might want to tweak the wording a little when you didn't call her. So I called Betty and say, here's what I'm thinking of doing, or worse, here's what I've done. And um, sometimes she'd say what I hope, because, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. But mostly she'd say, oh, man, you're going to call your sponsor right now. And I tried to be the same kind of friend um, back at her, and I, I think it's really, really important. When we were, she was over three days less than me. When we were 10 years older, she went out. And then um, I didn't see her until I was 25 years sober and I was visiting her in prison. So it's not like she went out and had a great time. Uh, I believe she was sober today. I heard that she was sober today and that makes me very happy she was in another state now. But the point I'm making here is, you know, I'm not a better person than Daddy or more deserving or, you know, I used to think if I was prettier than her or smarter than her, my life would be so much better. As near as I can tell, the only, the only difference between us is if I try to do everything that has been asked of me in alcoholics anonymous, whether I wanted to or not, just I just do it. You know, I'm not always happy to this day. I'm still not always happy about the things that I'm asked to do. But I do them and I always, of course, feel better afterwards. You think you'd remember that, wouldn't you? You know, when you think, oh, I don't want to ask it and then Maybe that's why we keep going to meetings all the time. I don't know. But if you're new, I hope you hear nothing else you hear this. Alcoholic Anonymous is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I live this incredibly good life today because of it. I, I feel um, comfortable and um, I feel comfortable in my own skin. You know, life is good and I am very glad to be here. Thank you.